0: Welcome to this podcast summarizing the April issue of the Heart Rhythm O2 Journal. I'm Jeannie Poole, the editor-in-chief. The first original article is titled, Performance and Outcomes of Transvenous Rotational Lead Extraction, Results from a Prospective Monitor Global Clinical Study by authors Sharma and colleagues. In this paper, the authors present data from a prospective study of patients undergoing lead extraction using mechanical transvenous Rotational lead extraction. 10 sites participated and were only 230 patients, and a total of 460 leads were extracted. The median dwell time was 7.4 years, and 66% were pacemaker leads, while the remainder were ICD leads. The majority of extractions were for a non infectious indication. In 88% of the leads, a bi-directional sheath was required to free the lead, while the remainder were removed with simple traction or using a locking stylet. The majority of lead extractions used a superior approach only. The authors observed a complete procedural success in the majority, or 96%, and clinical success in nearly 99%. 13 patients, or 5.7%, experienced major complications during the procedure or during the 30-day follow-up. Six of the 13 patients were adjudicated to have had a direct device-related complication. Two of these required open-heart surgery, one to repair injury of the interatrial septum, and the other for injury at the svc junction. No deaths occurred. In summary, the authors conclude that the use of bi-directional rotational sheaths in this study showed high efficacy and safety. An excellent editorial by Drs. Birger's daughter Green, Shaw, and Palema from the University of California San Diego accompanies this article. The second article in this issue is titled Heart Rate Score, A Measure Related to Chronotropic Incompetence in Pacemaker Patients by Drs. Sharma and colleagues. This is an interesting study that uses a heart rate score. This score is a parameter of long-term heart rate variability that was previously derived using machine learning approaches and published previously by Bruce Wilcoff and colleagues, where they were able to show a correlation of mortality in ICD and CRTD patients using this simple device histogram measure. The heart rate score is defined as the percent of all atrial paced and sensed events in the single tallest 10 beats per minute device histogram bin. When the score is high, then there are few sensed cardiac cycles above the programmed lower rate. Here in this study, the investigators postulated that this histogram of heart rate score would be useful to assess chronotropic incompetence in pacemaker patients. This study examined prospectively patients one month post-implant. The resting histogram was analyzed for the heart rate score and then the patients underwent a submaximal exercise test in DDD mode with all patients lower rate limits set at 60 beats per minute. Then the exercise heart rate score was examined. The authors found that the heart rate score was only 70% in 43% of the subjects, and that this had significant correlation to a previous diagnosis of sick sinus syndrome. Having a heart rate score of 70% also was the best predictor of chronotropic incompetence on the exercise test. The authors note that the heart rate score is a simple, inexpensive, and quantitative method to follow chronotropic incompetence in subjects with CIEDs. The third paper in this issue is called Utilization and Programming of an Automatic MRI Recognition Feature for Cardiac Rhythm Management Devices by Drs. Mullane and colleagues. This study summarizes the use of the Biotronic MRI auto-detect feature. This feature can be programmed on up to 14 days prior to the MRI scan with pre-specified program parameters determined by the provider then when the patient enters an MRI field it will convert to this pre-specified programming and when the patient comes out of the MRI environment it reverts to original programming. Using de-identified remote monitoring transmission data from 2197 pacemaker, ICD, or CRTs with this feature capable, The authors identified that the auto-detect feature was used 2,806 times for an average MRI exposure of 41 minutes. The majority, or 89%, had the feature programmed on the same day as the MRI. A same-day post-MRI interrogation performed in person was performed only 8.6% of the time. There were no reported patient adverse events. There were seven device events noted on review of all post-MRI interrogation, of which two were considered to be possibly related to the MRI auto-detection mode. The authors conclude that automation in device programming eliminated post-MRI in-person device programming in the majority of the cases. Features such as this could help to eliminate the need for in-person personnel for MRI scanning. The next paper, is titled, Ectopic Cycle Length Estimation from the Quantified Distribution Patterns of Ventricular Bigemini and Trigemini, authored by Dr. Yanagi and colleagues. These authors evaluate the post-extrasystolic intervals in patients with frequent ventricular ectopy. They postulate that the post-extrasystolic intervals determine what the interectopic ectopic intervals and ectopic cycle length will be. To examine this question, the authors reviewed the 12-lead electrocardiograms of 1,290 patients with a high burden of ventricular ectopy. The authors looked at the the post systolic interval as a ratio of that for trigeminy over bigemini. They then identified three categories by these ratios, 0.9, greater than 0.9 to 1.20, or greater than 1.20. The ectopic cycle length was the average amongst the trigemini or the bigemini in the racial category of 0.9, which they referred to as standard, and for the other two categories, they used the bigeminal intervals. The authors found that the trigeminy to bigeminy interectopic intervals were linearly related to the trigeminal to bigeminal post extrasystolic interval they also found that the interectopic intervals were the longest in the group of patients whose post extrasystolic interval ratios were 0.9 and shorter with the other two racial categories. The authors conclude that the three racial categories of the post-extrasystolic intervals of trigeminy to bigeminy relate to the interectopic intervals and to the ectopic cycle lengths. Up next is a paper titled Diagnostic accuracy of the response to the brief tachycardia provoked by standing in children suspected for long QT syndrome by authors Dr. Vink and colleagues. The authors note that it has been observed that adults with long QT syndrome do not appropriately shorten their QT intervals upon standing. This study evaluated the standing test in genotype positive long QT children. QT intervals were measured before and after standing in 47 children with genotype positive long QT control children. The authors found that the non-standing QTC was 90% sensitive to identify the children with LQTS using a QTC of 435 milliseconds. The specificity was 65%. Upon standing, a QTC of 490 milliseconds increased the sensitivity slightly to 91% and decreased the specificity to 58%. The presence or absence of T-wave abnormalities improved the sensitivity for diagnosis. When the combination of a QTC baseline of 440 milliseconds plus a standing QTC of 490 milliseconds plus T-wave changes, the sensitivity increased to 96%, though specificity dropped to 41%. Another finding in this study is that 30 seconds after standing, the LQTS children had a greater increase in heart rate compared to controls, and this was especially notable in boys. The authors conclude that the standing test is not additive from non-standing QT measurements in children. The next paper is titled Outcomes of Sustained Fetal Tachyarrhythmias After Transplacental Treatment by Drs. Barting and colleagues. Fetal tachyarrhythmias can be associated with serious outcomes including fetal death. In this study, the authors retrospectively evaluated 69 cases with sustained fetal tachyarrhythmia. Outcome measures included the perinatal and long-term outcomes according to whether the in-uteral treatment was associated with conversion of the tachyarrhythmia, which occurred in 74%, or whether it persisted and therefore was considered drug-resistant. No significant difference in perinatal death was observed, though the mortality was 6.7% in those that converted versus 17% in those who did not. The neonates, who were drug-resistant, however, were significantly more likely to be admitted to ICUs, 75 versus 31%, and their hospital stays were longer. Three perinatal deaths occurred in both groups, 6.7% in those who converted versus 17% in the drug-resistant group. Other outcomes more frequent in the drug-resistant neonates included recurrent arrhythmias, hemodynamic dysfunction, and requiring more complex therapies. It was also noted that PJRT was present in 31% of the drug-resistant neonates, which is higher than the observation of SVC types in general in children. Atrial tachycardias also were overrepresented. The authors conclude that post delivery conversion of fetal tachyarrhythmias is associated with better outcomes than drug resistant arrhythmias, and that uncommon SVTs in children, PJRT, and atrial tachycardia, were overrepresented in drug resistant fetal tachyarrhythmias. The next paper is titled The Pregnancy Induced Increased Heart Rate is Independent of Thyroid Hormones by Dr. Long and colleagues. In this paper, the authors explore the cause of the pregnancy-related heart rate increase. It is known that the heart rate increases by 10 to 20 beats per minute, reaching its maximum in the third trimester. Another observation with pregnancy is that thyroid hormone levels also change, specifically the T3 increases by 50%. In a mice model, the authors explore the potential relationship between the heart rate increase and the increase in thyroid hormones. Heart rates were compared in pregnant and non-pregnant mice with alteration of thyroid hormone levels and also after giving the mice propyl thiouracil The authors found that pregnant mice also had a greater than 50% rise in T3 levels and had higher baseline heart rates than the non-pregnant mice. However, the response to being given T3 was similar between pregnant and non-pregnant mice. Following PTU, the heart rate remained elevated in both groups of mice. The authors conclude that in mice, the elevation in T3 does not appear to explain the heart rate elevation in pregnancy and that this may also be true in humans. The last study in this issue is titled Comparing Patient and Family Usability of Insertable Cardiac Monitors in a Pediatric Cohort. Patient External Activator versus Smartphone Transmission by Dr. Lorimer and colleagues. This interesting study looks at the usability of ICMs in the pediatric population. Patients either had the Abbott confirm or the Medtronic link devices inserted. Usability was assessed with patient and guardian surveys. The form of transmission either external activation or smartphone based were confirmed. The key findings for this study where that first the authors did not identify a difference in ease of use between ICMs using external patient-activated transmission systems to smartphone application-based transmission. Second, regardless of transmission method, patients and guardians reported high levels of convenience and confidence that their transmissions were reaching the medical team. And finally, having an ICM was considered to have an important impact on guiding medical management. In addition to the eight studies that I have summarized, two review papers are included in the April issue. The first is titled, What Clinical Trials of Ablation for Atrial Fibrillation Tell Us and What They Do Not. The authors are Drs. Ram, Emma Thun, and Anne Curtis. The second review paper is entitled, Catheter Ablation via the Left Atrium for Atrial Ventricular Nodal Reentrant Tachycardia, a Narrative Review by Dr. Norman Wang. The final two papers are a perspectives in contrast. The topic of these papers is ablation of asymptomatic PVCs with a 20% burden when the left ventricular function is normal. Taking the pro-ablation side is Dr. Frederick Hahn and arguing the opposite perspective is taken by Dr. Kurt Hoffmeier. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoy the issue. We welcome investigators to consider our journal for publication of your studies.